Housing News listeners. This is Clayton Collins. I'm the CEO at Housing Wire, and I'm coming to you from Housing Wire's HQ in Dallas, Texas, with episode 14 of season one of the Housing News podcast. This week, we talked to a really experienced and insightful leader from the non-QM space. We dive deep into what is non-QM. We talk about agency versus non-agency, the expiration of the QM patch, and uh, we even talk about housing sentiment and how Americans are feeling about homeownership. Before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Blend. Blend is a digital mortgage platform that streamlines the loan process with an efficient, secure, and transparent customer experience. Blend powers industry-leading teams at some of the nation's largest lenders, as well as regionally focused credit unions and community banks. Blend helps lenders process over a billion dollars in loans daily, and every Blend partnership is benchmarked on delivering a truly exceptional customer experience. To learn more about Blend, visit Blend.com. And without further ado, let's jump into episode 14 of Housing News. This week for the 14th episode of the Housing News Podcast, we're really lucky to have one of the leaders from the, the TPO, the Wholesale and Correspondent Market, who's got a specific focus on, on non-QM, join us on the show to share some of the knowledge that, that he has developed uh, over with over 18 years of experience leading sales teams and, and wholesale and, and correspondent lending platforms. And uh, this week, we're really lucky to welcome Tom Hutchins. Tom is the EVP of production at Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions. And for those of you that don't know Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions, they are an Atlanta-based lender um, that's been doing non-QM for, I think, over five years and is licensed in, in 44 states and a, a real leader in the market. Um, Tom, welcome to the Housing News Podcast. Uh, thanks a lot, Clay. Great to be here. Well, Tom, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the format of the show, but we, we really love uh, to really learn about our guests, and we really value stories here at Housing Wire. And um, so, we'd love to hear hear your background. How, how'd you get? How'd your professional career begin? And how'd you get started in the mortgage industry? Well, I uh, I got into the mortgage business in the late '90s. Uh, a friend of mine had actually started a a small wholesale. Um, it was a subprime company back then. Um, that that was the terminology, and I I, I started my career with, with them and. And helped build that in, into a, a rather large entity uh, prior to the to the uh, mortgage meltdown. Really? So, what were your so from from starting in that entity in the late nineties? How did how did your roles evolve? Mm-hmm. Did you start as an entrepreneur? Did you start kind of at the entry level? What was your? How did that evolve? I have always been on the sales and business development side of the business. So I, I started as a salesperson. Um, Back in, back in the day, back then, you, you, you built the business by picking up a phone book and going out and meeting with originators all over the market. And, and that's what I did. And then I helped uh, build, build areas and regions and, and, and the company as a whole. So uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, my favorite thing to do is to actually work with originators. I don't do it as much directly anymore, but, but that, uh, that, that, that's a fun part of this business for sure. Now, I, I believe, are you're based in Atlanta now, correct? That is correct. Angel Oak, all, all of our companies are based here, yes. Oh, great. So were you, were you Atlanta-based in that first, uh, that first lending institution? or, or uh, they, uh, I, I, actually, bringing... I actually started in, 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 I was in Dallas, Texas. Okay. And uh, eventually worked my way to Atlanta. Our, the, the company I was with was, was also based in Atlanta. So uh, I came to the corporate office and kind of helped build it, um, the sales organization more corporately. Uh, for the latter part of, of my tenure there. 
Well, we uh, have a particular affinity for Dallas. That is where Housing Wire is based. That's where I'm sitting right now. Oh, great. Love Dallas. Great, great city, great market. <laughs> so from coming from that first lending institution where that, that you were calling subprime at the, at the time mm -hmm. and uh, helped build out the sales function and worked with originators, how, how'd that path lead you to, to Angel Oak? Were there any other steps in between? Well, you, you know, yeah, sure. I mean, I, 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 like many others who were in the space had, had some, some steps in between. I, I actually started up a, an appraisal management company during that period. And, um, but, but I had stayed in contact with, um, a, a gentleman by the name of Mike Fearman, and he, he actually started Angel Oak, uh, as an asset manager soon after the crisis, kind of looking at the, the dislocations of the, the, the market at the time. And, you know, we just kind of had always talked that, the pendulum post-crisis really swung. You know, the, the market everyone would agree was was way too loose pre-crisis, but then when the crisis occurred, the market just did an about-face and became way too tight. And so, we always had a belief that the need for you know call it whatever you know whatever term you want to use, non-agency loans has always been there. It's always been a a significant piece of the mortgage market, but. But immediately after the crisis, all private capital left, and the only loans available from uh, you know a number of years were Fannie, Freddie, and FHA. And 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 as an American, if you fell outside any you know those those few boxes, and those are tight boxes, if you fell outside of those, you really had no options. So um, that's you know I came on with Angel Oak over five years ago now, and. And that, that's been our mission all along is just to, to kind of expand the mortgage offerings, you know, to, to help more Americans become homeowners. That's kind of at the end of the day, that's our mission. And um, that, that's what we've been working on for a long time now. I think you, you kind of just scratched the surface of, uh, of the definition of non-QM, but uh, we have a lot of <laughs> listeners that are, we have a lot of mortgage professionals who know this inside now, but we also have uh, particip industry participants from across the industry, from real estate agents and other uh, AMCs and technology providers on, the, on this podcast that, that listen to every episode. So Tom, if you were, you're at a barbecue in your neighborhood and you're telling somebody what Angel Oak does, how do you describe, how do you describe the business? How do you, um, do you use the, the term non-QM or how do you describe that to like the, the uninitiated? Uh, you know, I don't use non-QM outside of mortgage people because it, it kind of, it's absolutely a misnomer because of the name, even what QM, QM stands for qualified mortgage. So if you think of something that's a non-qualified mortgage, that's a pretty negative connotation. And that's <laughs> not really, that, 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 that just kind of came into being because uh, the CFPB uh, you know, the big regulator over the mortgage space, they came out with a qualified mortgage designation. I think the easiest way for most people to understand it is agency loans, meaning Fannie and Freddie and, and government loans, FHA, they are considered QM qualified mortgages. So if you fall outside and, I, you know, there, there's exception to, to every single rule. So, uh, but in general, if you fall outside of those entities, those GSE type loans, you're going to then, your options for lending are become a non-QM loan. A not, but, but I refer really more to it as non-agency. We're in the non-agency space, um, not simply non-QM. Okay, so 
why why does the market need non-QM? Like, why is an agency enough? Why can't everything go through Fannie and Freddie and FHA? Well, you know, I think you have a, a lot of you know, so, some obvious reasons. One are loan limits. You know, FHA loan limits are in the high 400. So if you need a $600,000 loan, you're and you're not in a high cost market, which is, you know, the expensive coastal states and the Hawaii of the world, then, then you're not you're not going to be able to qualify for an agency loan. So so there's always been a need in our, you know, throughout time for non-agency. The really the mandate of, of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is not to, to give everyone a, a loan or, you know, that's not really they're 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 there to expand home ownership. And again, I feel like that's our mission as well. We're here to expand home ownership, but we're just outside of the guidelines, the you know, the pretty tight guidelines that that the the uh, GSEs have today. So, can kind of taking this to the the borrower perspective, if I'm if I'm a borrower, first first time homeowner, or buying my my third house, and I'm working with a mortgage broker, or if I'm I'm speaking with a a, a big um, independent mortgage bank. And I don't mm-hmm. fall inside of the QM guidelines. What does that experience look like for the borrower? Is there any is there anything different about the way the the product is structured, the way the that the way rates are structured, the way the process, the origination process is different? How does that how does the QM versus non QM um, experience differ for the homeowner? Well, I'd say really the biggest difference could be today and certainly in the, the, the most recent few years is a lot of originators have not really become educated and experienced in, in originating non-QM loans. So if you fall outside of the QM designation or the agency uh, box, if you will, um, there's a lot of lenders that won't really know how to, you know, what to do with you. They're just going to say, sorry, you don't qualify. However, that's been changing pretty, pretty dramatically over the last 24 months for sure. So um, as long as you find that lender that, that has exposure to some different products and I don't, you know, you probably have some, maybe some realtors that are listening in, um, you know, real, real estate agents have really kind of grabbed hold of the, the this non-QM concept because it, it just helps expand every, the buyer base for, for everybody out there. Um, but as far as the experience to, to originate a loan, you have to provide the same documentation. It's, it, it is no different. If, if you're a W-2 borrower and you want an agency loan, you've got to provide your last two years W-2s. If you end up in a non-QM loan, you have to provide the last two years W-2s just like an agency loan. So it's, it's not really different. Um, you know, the, the thing that I, the, another difference though is that if you qualify for an agency, you get, you know, that agency rate. But when you get into the non-agency, the non-QM stuff, all rates are very risk-based. Um, and I'll give you an example. We, we, we allow borrowers who have not been that far away from a foreclosure. You know, maybe they had a strategic, they got underwater in a house and, and they let it go six months ago, a year ago. Well, you're going to have to wait at least four years to get an agency loan. But you can get a non-QM loan, but those rates are going to be based on how long ago was your credit event. So if it was six months ago, you're going to be on the higher spectrum from a rate perspective. If it was three and a half, four years ago, you're going to be on the lower spectrum. So, you know, that, that's, it, it, does that make sense? So it's, it's just kind of, it's risk-based pricing because it's private capital. These loans, 
um, an agency loan, a Fannie Mae loan, those are the performance of those is guaranteed by the government. So that's why the rates are going to, you know, almost in all cases be lowest on these agency loans. But this is private capital. There are no government guarantees on these loans. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, so when you so coming back to the the borrower experience, when a when an originator, whether a broker or a banker, is communicating um, with with their borrower and trying to figure out the right product, what's what's the terminology the what's the terminology that the that the educated uh, originator is using when they're telling their their clients about this product opportunity? I assume they're not telling them, "Hey, I got a non QM product for you," because that just wouldn't mean anything, uh, you, or it would have that negative connotation right. you mentioned earlier. I, you know, I think non-agency would be a pretty common term. You know, it's, hey, listen, I couldn't fit you in the Fannie Mae box. So that 4% rate that we talked about, it's it's just that's not going to be available for you. And here's why. You know, they, every, they, they should absolutely know why and be able to explain that. And then say, but I do have some other options. And let me, you know, let me tell you about those. And, and so that's, that's really what a good originator is going to do. They're going to educate the borrower on why they could not qualify for the agency loan and, and talk to them about, okay, what would it take a year, two years down the road to become agency eligible? You know, that's, that's, that's what everybody should, should be asking. And that's what really most good loan officers are going to talk to their borrowers about. As we talk through this, it just feels like education is the is a, just a massive need and a massive hurdle here. I, I feel and I and I hear that people that are one or two or three years out from a uh, from a strategic default or some other uh, negative credit scenario just believe that a, a mortgage is not an option or home ownership is not an option. Uh, it, are, are you starting to see that that wave turn and the awareness changing of the uh, that that there are options out there for people with kind of oh, yeah okay. yeah that's that's great that you've even picked up on it I mean for, uh, Clayton for for five years I tell everybody we've simply been on an education and awareness mission <laughs> that's we're just trying to make everyone aware of the products and educate them on what they are you know I mentioned. Uh, in a prior career, I was with a what was labeled a subprime company. So part of our education is is teaching even originators who were in the business pre-crisis of what you know, non-QM is. It's not subprime 2.0. You know, it's really these are these are good loans. They they have all have a a big term in our space is a documented ability to repay. Um, and, and that's, that's mandated by the CFPB, whether you have a QM or a, a non-QM loan and, and, and we really believe in these loans. So, um, but yes, it's, it's all about awareness and as, and as people in the real estate community become more aware of these products and programs, they, you know, they kind of latch hold of them, especially, especially on the origination side, originators who are, who have made non-QM part of their everyday offerings they've really seen it grow their business and, and expand their customer base. Are there any particular um, uh, 
uh, borrower segments that are kind of th- that are seeing a lot of activity in in non QM. I mean, where, where are, is this like something you're main, mainly seeing self employed business owners, or, or mainly seeing people without a lot of credit history, or like, or are, are there any pockets that like originators should really be focusing on, or or if they have a concentration of that um, that segment in their uh, book of business or in their pipeline, they should be learning more about non QM. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a really good question, Clayton. There's two categories that, that are the biggest chunks, if you will, of non-QM. The first is one you already hit on, the, the self-employed borrower. Uh, self-employed borrowers, you know, we all know one of the, you know, one of the benefits of becoming self-employed is that, you know, you, you're able to take advantage of some of the tax code. If you're a W-2 borrower, you get a pay stub, at the end of the year, you get your W-2, that's the the things that you're allowed to include in your business as business expenses is, is fairly limited. But as a self-employed borrower, um, you can include things that, you know, you might consider personal expenditures, but those are uh, allowable to, to flow through your business. So, so your net income shown based on the tax code doesn't necessarily really reflect the income that your business is generating. And so that's become over 50% of the non-QM business nationwide is the self-employed. Uh, it's a bank statement loan. So instead of looking at tax returns of a borrower, we're looking at cash flow within their business or personal bank account. Uh, and we believe that's actually a better indicator of someone's ability to repay a mortgage. That's really it. So how, how does it work in a scenario if, uh, if an entrepreneur has, uh, ha, has partners or investors? Is that, does that complicate the, the bank statement loan or the self-employed borrower loan? No, no not necessarily. I mean, they, there, there is flexibility as far as the percentage of the business that they have to own. And, um, and I'll give you an example. Let's say you, you, you have a, a partner and you own 50% of the business. Well, we'd look at the business's income and give you credit for 50% of it. Well, that's and, and so, so it makes it makes it makes a lot of sense, and uh, we've we've streamlined the process, so it's it's fairly easy to originate it. It's you know our our goal is to make these loans as easy to originate as an agency loan, and and we make strides on that effort every single day. So, but from a borrower's perspective, if they went to a loan officer, handed them the tax returns, and they look at the tax returns and say sorry, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have, you're not going to be able to qualify for this $750,000 house because your tax returns show you make $25,000 <laughs> on a net basis as an example, but, but, but you have a great cash flow and that 25,000 kind of goes back to, you know, maybe you had some loss carry forwards. I, I was speaking uh, to a friend of mine actually over the weekend and he, he was telling me about how he had just bought a house and he is self-employed and has businesses and multiple businesses and but his tax returns he has just lots and lots of of write downs so his net income does not allow him to qualify for an agency loan and so he had to go find a, a, a little local bank that would spend lots and lots of time uh, on his situation to, to get him a loan and I explained to him that's that's really exactly what we do except we do it on a grander scale you know we do it on guidelines across the country as opposed to a borrower having to go to a bank and that bank decide yes or no on, on, on this one individual loan. Um, you know, we, we've kind of created it where it's scalable to the masses for originators all over the country to take the guidelines and the processes and, and make these loans work. 
Now, I don't want to put you too much on the spot hunting for, for metrics here, but since this is the business yeah. model, I imagine this is something you've thought a little bit about. What, what is the, the, the total market opportunity or um, like number of projected borrowers or potential homeowners that would, uh, that would qualify for, for non-QM? I'm, I'm kind of trying to like paint the picture for the market opportunity here for, for uh, non-bank lenders or, or brokers that are thinking about ramping up their, their QM production. And uh, I, I imagine it's a pretty sizable segment. Well, so, uh, you know, we get that question all the time, Clayton, because everybody wants to know, well, do, do I s spend time becoming an expert in non-QM? If, 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 is there plenty of business here for me? And, and, you know, we just, we, we believe it's a numbers game, but we, we look at statistics. Uh, you know, I talked about, I got into the business in the late nineties, around 2000, 2001, agency and non-agency was a, a pretty reasonable mix meaning the guidelines back then were risk-based and loan-to-values were, were lowered when risk was higher and rates were raised when risk was higher. That kind of went away as we got really close to the crisis. You know, it was like everyone seemed to be able to get a 100% loan no matter what um, at, at, at extremely low rates. But we look at that 2000 range, and, and at that period, there was about $300 billion a year of non-agency originations and we believe that 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 was a that was reasonable originations good guidelines good underwriting and we believe that that's an attainable uh, segment of the current market um, maybe maybe it's 200 billion maybe it's 150 maybe it's 250 but in that 150 to 250 to 300 billion dollar a year annual originations right now it's maybe you know maybe in 2019 there will be 25 to 40 billion in originations. So, you know we just see so much growth. It's really just getting started um, for, from a potential standpoint. So we're really just scratching the the surface of the opportunity here. I mean, if uh, if we're at 25 to 40 right now, I mean, there's an opportunity for um, the the non-agency market to be 10 times the size that that it's projected to be in 2019. Without a doubt, and and we we believe it to be to be so, and you know we're seeing it on all fronts. You know, at Angel Oak, we we actually issue securitizations of of our non-QM production, and so we're seeing the investor demand, um, the market demand from the originators across the country. So you know, if if there's demand in in the market and there's demand from the investment world, the the we only have one way to go up, and, and that is up. That's. Uh, I'm glad you brought in the the secondary market perspective there. And is that is that demand uh, for non agency non agency is that has that been consistent? Is it is it growing? Are, are there any? Um, uh, I don't know if there's specific investors you want to reference that are that are, are taking down that credit or or have a strong interest. I'm I'm just interested to to learn a little bit more about that investor demand. I would say it is fast, fast growing. And, and the reason is, and this is part of our mission as well, is that we had to, from the very get-go, we knew we had to originate good performing loans. Because if we started this back in 2013, and all of a sudden we started originating these non-QM loans and the performance was bad, then people would say, you know, this is 2006 all over again. I'm not interested. But we have our, the performance of our loans and, and really and everyone in the non-QM space has been stellar. 
um, I'll just, I'll cite something for you because Fitch, one of the rating agencies, uh, they did a study. Once uh, securitizations become rated, the actual performance of the underlying loans becomes public data. And so Fitch put out a study. They looked at uh, securitized non-QM loans. I think it was from the 2016 range. But they looked at 11,000 loans, over $4 billion of securitized non-QM production. And there had been a total, 11,000 loans, remember that, have been a total of eight loans that had gone into foreclosure out of that 11,000. Yeah, I'm pretty so, sure we. I'm pretty sure our our newsroom covered that. I um, I, I uh, we we publish a lot of articles. I don't remember every single one, but uh, I'll try to find that yeah. one and put it in the show notes for for this because I, I remember yeah. reading about that and seeing uh, thinking how remarkable that was. Yeah. So so to me that that's really that's why the investor demand is really high because these loans are performing and you know we're, we're able to offer private capital a reasonable rate of return. And, and the loans at the end of the day are performing. So, so the demand is, in fact, the demand on the investor side is much, much higher than, than the supply. That, that $150, $200 billion, uh, the, the, the investor side is going is to be there before the origination side is. And that's, and that's um, I mean, that's where things got a little rocky 15 years ago is when the, the investor demand uh, was, was stronger than the origination volume and, and uh, guidelines got a, got a little bit too wide <laughs> to, to say the, to say yes. the least. No, um, so it no doubt about like it. We're in a market where, I mean, it, it feels like we have players that want to be in this for the long haul. And if you're going to be in it for the long haul, you have to have performing loans. And I mean, are you, right. are you sensing um, uh, any uh, kind of lesser, um, I don't want to say unscrupulous or, or players with, without de the dedication to long, the long term that you have? Like, is there a risk of that coming back into the market with, based off that? Investor well, you, you know, the, one, the biggest difference, I, there's two major differences between 2004 and 2019. The first is technology. You know, back then, everything was manual. And I'll, you know, I'll give you an example, just like appraisals. We had no way to verify the data that was on. We got a, a printout copy of an appraisal. Well, now all this stuff is, uh, is electronic. It's ordered not by anybody on the origination side. So it's ordered generally by lenders like Angel Oak. Uh, there's, no, there's no salespeople involved in the appraisal process. So one, one thing that, you know, not a lot of people talk about, but loan to values weren't really as known pre-crisis because values weren't, weren't really as, as reliable as they are today. Um, so technology on a lot of fronts, we can verify documentation. Fraud is, is a lot easier to mitigate when you can verify things online, if that makes, just in general. So that's a big one. Um, and, and, and then, you know, I guess I would just say that the, the other things that, that really kind of keep us safe or, or differentiate us from, uh, from the pre-crisis is, um, gosh, I've just lost my, my, my thought. 
Clayton, I'm sorry. So, so, so <laughs> I got, we, I got we, it too far off. So we've mitigated <laughs> fraud with technology. There, you're not bringing in fraudulent bank statements. You don't have fraud on on the appraisal. You have yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's one big mitigating factor to preventing the 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 the, the crazy days of 2003 to 2007 from from happening again. Is is there another mitigating factor there? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's regulation. You know, we, the CFPB did not exist pre-crisis. Um, I've already said it. The, the, the regulation that says the, the documented borrower, a borrower's documented ability to repay a loan, that, that kind of, to me, that keeps everybody honest. You know, you're kind of, are there some fringe lenders? And there's really not that because you have to have this. I mean, it is, it is a, against the, the law to originate a loan without documented ability to repay. Excellent. All right. So well, pre-crisis, you, you probably remember Nina's and you know, all these names of loans that did not include yeah, any documentation of income. Ninja, yeah, yeah there was a whole slew of them, wasn't there? Well, th- those those don't exist anymore. Yeah, perfect. So, I, Tom, I intended uh, to focus on you, but we got straight into the, the history of um, <laughs> the non-QM <laughs> Well, I, yeah. I know. Well, it's, exci- it's exciting stuff. Sorry, I might, I might I have read it that way. We could, we could go <laughs> on for a couple hours here. We might lose a few of our listeners. I don't know. No, no. I didn't, I didn't yeah, yeah. So, let's, a couple times you've mentioned uh, that of non-QM specifically, but the, the kind of the broader mortgage market, the, the focus on helping Americans get into homes. And uh, right. last week, one of our our top articles, uh, actually by Alcena, who's who's our um, producer on this podcast uh, was uh, the title was Americans have never felt better about buying a house than they do right now. And uh, the article talks about Fannie Mae's home purchase sentiment index and that in July housing confidence increased as more Americans reported that now is a good time to buy. So kind of bo- boiling this down, um, Americans feel uh, pretty pretty bullish on, on owning houses. They 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 want to own houses. Family formation is uh is is accelerating, and um, the first time home buyers are coming of age are coming of age and are, are ready to to put down roots. But that that metric isn't hundred percent lining up with what we're seeing in uh, in origination volume and home sales. And uh, I'm kind of curious as a right. as a as a lender. Um, what what are you hearing from from your clients about the the, the current origination volume? What are you what are you seeing in your pipeline? Uh, any kind of interpretations on the the dislocation between sentiment and home sales? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think the market just continues to evolve. You know, you think about pre crisis and and a lot of people were buying houses, it truly like speculative purchases and just just getting into the market to to make money, whether they were second homes or investment properties or or even primary residences. But those, you know, those days are, are, are gone, those high flying days. So now it's really people that want to become homeowners. And, and I think the sentiment is good because, you know, frankly, the economy has been solid for a number of years. So I think that's why sentiment is good. Now, it is not necessarily translating into all these purchase transactions. And a lot of that is, is there's still a supply issue, a lack of supply. Yep. Um, and and that, that has not changed. There are still, you know, you look at people, there's a lot of people that are staying put and renovating, you know, the renovation business is, is off the charts. So people are staying put and, and putting money into their current home instead of 
selling and, and moving up per se. But, but you know, I, I think everything is reasonable now. What, you know, the, the demand is reasonable. The supply is, you know, a little on the low end, but I don't think it's terribly far from, from being normalized either. So I, I think this is a sustainable market. You know, recently we've seen the uh, so, some rate drops, so there's some refinance activity, and we are seeing debt consolidation and, and cash out refinances, even you know in our non the non QM space, uh, grow in the last 60 days or so, and I, I, I expect that to continue. The the same article referenced that on on the subject of rates referenced that uh, a majority of consumers expect mortgage rates, mortgage interest rates to fall within the next 12 months. Talking to a few originators, I, I've heard a few kind of some anecdotal evidence of, of people that are, are hesitant to lock and um, they know they want to buy a house. They might have even found that home, but they say, hey, rates are going to be lower in three months. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold out. Uh, are, are, you, are you sensing any of that? Um, what, what's your, <laughs> um, how do you think rates are playing into some of the decision making that's, that's happening right now? I don't, I don't see a lot of that, uh, primarily because of back to the, the lack of inventory. Yeah. You know, when, there's, when there's less homes to buy, there's a lot of situations that I hear you know, with my colleagues talking about multiple offer situations. And, and so I don't, I don't see a lot of hesitancy on rates are going to be lower again in 60 days. Well, that's fine, but you, this house you want to buy isn't going to be available. So that's what—that's really what the consumers is is kind of weighing right now. Um, but I don't think it's stopping people from getting in. It, uh, you know, a good loan officer is going to say, "Hey, buy the house now and come see me in in a year, and I'll get you to that lower rate uh, and, and do a refinance for you." That, that might be uh, that might be risky advice. The to, or actually, or if they're, if they're buying <laughs> well, now, but, yeah, but. Um, yeah, yeah, but but, uh, what are, but rates are below four, so oh my gosh, you know they're almost at historic lows. You're you're going to hold out for maybe another quarter in rate that may or may not ever happen. So buy it now. Yeah, that's where the the saviellas that can do a cost of waiting analysis um, probably probably win in this environment as that that difference between three point seven five and three point. 3.625 uh, might not change <laughs> right. the <whole> financial picture. <laughs> not at all. I absolutely agree. All right. Well, Tom, while we have a, an expert in the agency, non-agency world uh, on the podcast today, mm -hmm. I'd love to, to jump back to an article that Housing Wire covered in the, the last week of July and it has still been a, a topic of, of buzz and a, and a lot of conversation. And uh, on, on July 26, uh, Housing Wire covered that the CFPB is, is moving to kill the, the QM patch. And, um, uh, and I know that's a topic that you're, that you're thinking a lot about. And before we actually get into the article, I just want to leverage your expertise mm -hmm. and uh, tell what is the QM patch and why does this matter? So part of uh, the QM designation that came out five plus years ago said um, if if you're approved by an agency, by let's say just by Fannie Mae, you are automatically QM, you, you are a QM borrower. This is a QM loan. But, but QM does have some hard stops. And the most common one is the debt to income ratio. So 43%, what we call DTI, is, is the cap for a QM loan. But if you have, let's say, a 49% DTI, but DU, which is the automated approval engine for Fannie Mae, 
gives you, uh, approves you, then you're kind of grandfathered into a QM loan. That is, that's a QM patch because really a 49 DTI is not a QM loan, but because Fannie Mae approved you, they're given QM status. So the patch is going to remove that. So it would, the, the agencies would have to follow the same rules that are written in the QM uh, rules. And primarily the biggest one is 43 debt to income ratio. So, so, if, so if I'm an originator and I, and I calculated a, a 49% DTI and I'm still pushing it through DU, am I just crossing my fingers that it, that this loan makes it through the, the patch or is there, are there other qualifiers that would inform an originator that this is worth submitting as a QM product? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, right now you run it through the DU uh, tool, which tells you, yes, we'll take it or no, we won't. Okay. So it doesn't, if it's 49, it can be 15. You know, there's no, there is no limit. If you get an approved eligible, then you can close that loan and sell that loan to Fannie Mae as a QM loan. But that is what the removal of the QM patch is going to do. And that's, that's January of 2021. So, you know, about a year and a half, less than a year and a half from now is when that patch is set to expire. Okay. So we talk a lot about um, expanding the credit box. So, so this sounds like a good thing for, for homeowners that there's a, there's a, there's an opportunity um, for someone who doesn't meet all of the, all of the qualifications of a, of a QM or agency product to, to still get into that product through the, the patch scenario. Um, but as we see more private capital come back into the industry, there's other participants um, that would pick up that loan and, uh, and essentially potentially offer a, a competitive product. So as a non-agency lender, um, is, that, is that your view here? Like how, how do you feel about the patch? How does that impact your business? Um, well, it, it, if the patch was just to occur on the date it's slated to, you know, they're talking estimates and, and let's just use that example of um, agency borrowers that are actually over 43 DTI. They're talking that that figure alone is about 300 billion a year. So that's going to immediately hit move from agency eligible to non-agency slash non-QM. So that's like larger um, so than the whole non-agency market that you're as you're defining it today. Absolutely. So it's a, and, it's a and so, Yes, without without a doubt, it's it'll have it, it's going to have a big impact. Um, but you know, the good news is that people like Angel Oak, we've been working on getting this private capital back into the mortgage space for years now. Our you know first securitization was um, 2015. So you know we, we've been doing this for four years and and. The, the machine of securitizations and, and reissuing and, and getting private capital into the space has, has been happening for a number of years. So we're pretty confident that the private market can absorb this additional volume. So if I'm an originator, what am I, what am I thinking about right now when I read about the CFPB patch? Am I thinking that, wow, I really need to improve my knowledge of, of non-agency? Am I thinking that I need to, um, I mean, I know it's still, uh, it's still 16, 17 months out, but am I thinking that if, if, if we're, 
if we're a few months leading up to the expiration, I need to, to get those, uh, to get those applications in that might uh, not qualify after January 21. What, what am I, what am I thinking about if I'm an originator? Well, I'm thinking, cause you know, to your point, it's 16, 17 months out is that I need to become comfortable originating non QM loans today. I just, I need to, because if it becomes this patch is, is removed, like it's, it seems like there, there's a high probability of that happening, then that's a significant, you know, we're talking then 25% in total of the, the origination market it becomes non-agency. So I need to be good at it before it gets here. So, you know, selfishly, I'd say, look, you know, look up Angel Oak and, and start doing business with us today because what you know at the the LO level and really at, at, at the company level at the the, um, the mortgage banking level you, you you have to have a comfort level and really an ability to originate non-agency loans. So do it now. The volume's there. You know, there's plenty of volume to build today, even without this QM patch. But the QM patch, as you said, would just would just kind of ramp it up even faster. Okay, and while we while we can't predict what the the GSCs are going to do here, what um are you are you hearing any rumblings or have any kind of interpretations on the, the probability of the patch being extended or the patch expiring? Like in any any like kind of <laughs> backroom rumblings <laughs> on what you think how this is going to play out? Yeah, I don't I don't think I'd be able to really. Yeah. comment on that yes i've i've heard the same thing that that you guys have heard and, and and reported on is that you know there's talk of extensions and you know not just flipping a switch on one day and you know i would say from our perspective it's really just planning enough notice because so private capital can get lined up to absorb this production yeah i mean we definitely i mean co covering the whole industry and we've had um, Bob Brocksmith from the NBA write a contributor column, which I, I think was kind of pressing on the the extension or encouraging reform in advance of the the patch expiration. And um, but I mean, I, I think from from my interpretation, re regardless of how this plays out, uh, it seems like originators need to be more aware of their options and uh, uh, what whether whatever happens with the QM patch, it's going to impact their business one way or another. and need to be prepared for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the today's non QM product offerings are, are extremely helpful to, to help them expand their business today. So, you know, you don't have to wait for this QM patch, what, you know, to wait and see what's going to happen with that. Just go ahead and, and start learning more about non QM, what it looks like today and, and getting yourself educated. And, and ultimately it sounds like the market is evolving and maturing to a place that we can serve homeowners and prospective homeowners of many different credit backgrounds and many different employment backgrounds. And, and that's exciting to see. That's what we've been, we've been talking about for years of the, the need for private capital to come back into the market. And I'm, I'm personally thrilled to thrilled to hear about the demand on the investor side and that there's uh, lenders out there helping meet that demand both on the borrower and investor side. Yep. Yes, it's, it is exciting. And, and I think to, to borrow your term, we're just really scratching the surface of it today. 
Awesome. Well, Tom, I really appreciate your time today. We, most of these episodes, we focus all in on, on news, but we just had such kind of unique expertise uh, from you here. We, I, had, I had to dig into the, uh, the, the agency, non-agency, non-QM world, and, and hopefully um, bring some new information to our listeners. So really appreciate the insight and expertise, and thank you for joining the show. My, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Clayton. I enjoyed it. A big thank you to all of our listeners at the Housing News Podcast. Like I mentioned earlier, this is episode 14. Next week's episode, number 15, will be our, our season finale of our first season of the show. And we're, we're thrilled to bring on another extremely insightful executive from the, the lending world as a, as a guest on that show. And uh, we'll take a few weeks off for Labor Day and then, then come back strong in September um, with another season of the Housing News Podcast. Um, before we end today, another thank you to our producer, Alcina Lloyd, and a big thank you to our season one sponsor, Blend. If you'd like to learn more about Blend, visit blend.com. See everybody next week. Thank you. Thank you.